Well, I welcome you to the Adult Bible class this morning. For those who are watching online as well, trust the Lord bless us, even as we meet around God's Word. So we'll turn this morning to Matthew chapter 26, please. Matthew 26. And we'll read from verse 36 and down to verse 46. So Matthew 26, commencing at 36, and then reading through down to verse 46. So read God's word and then we'll, we'll have a word of prayer. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Then cometh Jesus with them <coughs> unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as I wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Amen. And ending our reading there at verse 46. Let's just look to the Lord, please, in prayer, <coughs> and ask the Lord to give help even as we uh, wait before him this morning. Our gracious God and eternal Father, we do rejoice and thank thee for the privilege again of opening up the word of God, of reading it in our mother tongue. We thank thee, O Father, for the blessing that is ours to read, uh, to be hearers, O God, of the word of the living God. We pray, O God, that now as we come into thy presence, and we do so through the merits of Jesus Christ, that thou would hear us for thy Son's sake, that thou would remember us, O God, even in adult Bible class this morning. Remember the other Bible classes. Remember junior and senior Bible classes, our teachers. Remember Sunday school, Lord, our children, as they are there being catechized and instructed in the things of God. We pray that not only will you enable the teachers to open up the Word by the help of thy Spirit, but we pray, O God, that little hearts and minds will be opened up to receive and, Lord, may it be engrafted upon their hearts and minds while they're young. We pray, O God, it'll make a deep impression upon their souls, so much so they'll not be able to escape it. They will not be able to shake it from them. But, o God, we pray that as they are trained in the way that they should go, we pray, O God, that when they are old, that they will not depart from it. We pray, O God, that it will be a means of shutting them into the will of God. It's not your will that one of these little ones should perish. 
But we pray, O God, that you'll bring them to faith and to repentance. O God, hear our cry for our young. Hear us, O God, even for this day. As we meet in thy house, may the Spirit of the living God come. Dwell amongst us, instructing and teaching, convicting, convincing, counseling and guiding, reproving, rebuking. We pray that the Spirit himself will come and take the means of grace and fashion us after the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, now I stand in need of thy help, and I pray that thou would forgive me of my sin. O God, wash me in the Redeemer's blood and fill me full of the Spirit. And by faith I claim the promised Holy Ghost, and I pray that thou would give me help. May it be a means this morning of edifying and instructing and once again grounding thy children in the truth that they will not be blown about with every wind and doctrine. Hear our cry as we lift our eyes heavenward. We pray that thou will be favorable to us for these things we ask all in the Redeemer's precious and his worthy name. Amen. Now, we've been looking at the subject of the atonement in the adult Bible class, and we've already uh, uh, considered the explanation of the atonement from the words and the terms that are used in Scripture. And then we looked at the essentiality of the atonement, noticing on the one hand that there was nothing inherent in God nor in man for God to save any. And yet, on the other hand, and at the same time, it was absolutely necessary that the atonement was made. It was essential, for there was no other way in which sinners could be saved. And that's what we were thinking about the last time, a further four reasons why the atonement was absolutely necessary. Four reasons, four more reasons. The atonement was absolutely necessary, we thought about, because of the law of God. Transgression of God's law inevitably carries a penalty, which is death, and Christ, he bore that penalty. And so atonement was necessary because of the law of God. Number two, atonement was necessary because of the requirement of a perfect righteousness. Christ not only eliminated the penalty of sin by his sacrificial death, but he also obtained our heavenly eternal reward by his life of perfect and sinless obedience. Number three, the atonement was absolutely necessary because of the teaching of the gospel. The gospel, it clearly teaches, it contains those must passages which would be superfluous if the atonement was not necessary. And then in the last place, we thought about the atonement and being absolutely necessary because of the greatness of the sacrifice. It would be inconceivable for God to send His only begotten Son to all the suffering and all the misery and all the torture that he knew would befall him if it was not necessary. And so if we add in the justice and the righteousness of God and the holiness of God, and those four we considered the last time, there are six biblical reasons why the atonement was absolutely necessary. The very nature of God necessitated that atonement be made. Now, I also mentioned the last time that even though this is the case, and this is what we can deduce from Scripture, it has not stopped people from objecting to the essentiality of the atonement. They say, well, that undermines the very love of God, that it gives a wrong impression of God, and it creates, a, as it were, a separation between the Trinity. But I answered all those objections from the Scripture, and I dealt with those things. And we saw that the atonement was absolutely necessary, the essentiality of the atonement. 
Now this morning I want to move on and consider the essence of the atonement. We have seen that it was necessary, but what was its nature? And once we understand this from Scripture, well then we know how the atonement is to be viewed. It will safeguard us from having an erroneous understanding of it. And there are a number of major characteristics of the atonement that Christ made. Now the last characteristic, and I'll just tell you this before we come to it next time, it is that it's a definite atonement. And that will lead us into another main point of the atonement, really. We thought about the explanation of the atonement, the essentiality of the atonement. We're going to begin to think about the essence of the atonement. But then the big one is the extent of the atonement, for whom the atonement was made. And that really flows out of the fact that the, def- or the atonement, in its essence, by its nature, was definite. There was a purpose, there was an intent in view. And so we'll leave really that characteristic and that'll form a full point the next time, Lord willing. But I want to look at really the first three. There's three really characteristics, four if you include that it's definite, but three really main characteristics of the atonement as revealed in Scripture. So the first characteristic, the atonement, and these are things that, well, you've heard in preaching, things that you know, things that Uh, Maybe you've heard many, many times in the past, but it's good to have these in our hearts and our minds so we're uh, not led down a path of error with respect to the atonement because, and again, I'll show you this, there's really, well, we could say at least seven ways in which the atonement is is viewed by people. But there's really only one right and biblical way in which we can view it. So it's good to have a grounding in the essence and the nature of the atonement. The atonement, well, it is substitutionary in its essence. In theology, the term that is used is vicarious. Vicarious. Now, you've heard that word before. It comes from the word vicar. And a vicar is a person who is deputized to perform the function of another. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ, He did. And so vicariousness, it speaks of substitution. The satisfaction of divine justice by Christ was not for himself, but it was for others. Christ is our substitute. He died in our place. He gave his life's blood for our complete deliverance. He did it in the place of others. And he did it that he might meet all legal obligations and requirements of the law for them. All that the Savior did in His coming into this earth, and His assuming and taking to Himself a true humanity, and His living a life of perfect obedience, and His dying on the cross, and His rising again, and His ascension up on high was for us. It was substitutionary in nature. He not only did it for our benefit, but He did it particularly in our place. He stood as our substitute. Now, theologian W.G.T. Shedd, he said that it's good to establish the difference between personal and vicarious atonement. You see, when man fell in sin and rebelled against God, he owed God reparations. And we hear a lot about that in America in a minute, reparations and the paying off, really, of a debt that has been accumulated. But man, when he fell, he was in debt to the justice of God. He fell below God's standard, and therefore he owed God reparations in that respect. 
And the only way in which he could atone personally concerning both the magnitude of the offense and the inability and the depravity with which he was stricken, the only way that man could personally and can personally atone for his sin is by suffering eternally in a Christless hell. Suffering that penalty himself. This is why we say that hell is eternal. Because sinners are there atoning for their sins by their suffering. And yet they will never be able to fully satisfy the justice of God. And as a result, they will never be able to extinguish His holy wrath. Now this is what God's strict justice would have required of all men if it were not for His own good pleasure, for His love, for His grace, and for His mercy. Because we know the revelation of Scripture, God appointed one to come and die in the sinner's place, Christ. And so there is personal, personal atonement. There is vicarious atonement. And from this, because God uh, has appointed one to come, we can notice then the differences that there is between personal and substitutionary atonement. Personal atonement, well, it is provided by the offending party. But vicarious atonement, it is provided by the offended party. Number two, another difference. Personal atonement, it is incompatible with mercy. But vicarious atonement is the highest expression of divine mercy. Personal atonement is given by the criminal. It's not received by it. But vicarious atonement is received by the criminal. It's not given by it. Personal atonement is forever in the making. And therefore it cannot result in redemption or deliverance or reconciliation or forgiveness or satisfaction or whatever way you want to put it. It is forever in the making. Whereas vicarious atonement by its merit by Christ's once-for-all sacrifice for sin, has secured reconciliation and redemption. And so those are the four main differences between personal and vicarious atonement. Now, it's because Christ came as our surety, and we read about that in Hebrews chapter 7, that He came as obligated to fulfill all the legal requirements of a broken law, to redeem us, it's because He came as a surety, He is of necessity a substitute. The truth of the substitutionary nature of the atonement is clearly set forth in Scripture. Now, how do we see this in Scripture? Well, it's clearly seen in typology. In the Old Testament, you think of the account, once again, go back very early on in Scripture showing us very early the substitutionary, the vicariousness of the atonement that Christ would make, Mount Moriah. Abram taking his son Isaac up the mountain. And what do we read there in Genesis 22 in the verse 13? And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering. And here it is in the stead of his son. And so one of the clearest types in Scripture of Christ as the Redeemer, He is set forth there as a substitute, taking the place of another. 
the Old Testament sacrifices, well, they were also vicarious in nature. When the Israelite brought the sacrifice to offer before the Lord, he had to lay his hand upon that sacrifice, and he had to confess his sin. And that action, it symbolized the transfer of sin to the offering, and it rendered it fit alone to atone for the sin of the offering. Leviticus 1 verse 4, And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted, here's the words, for him, in the place of him, in the stead of him, to make atonement for him. The truth of the substitutionary nature is not only showed in types and shadows and in Mount Moriah and the offerings, but it's also explicitly taught clearly in, in passages in God's Word in the Old Testament. Isaiah 55, or 53 in the verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace is upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So there it's explicitly taught. It's seen in type, it's seen in shadow, but there it's explicitly taught. You move into the New Testament, it's also seen there. We have several passages about our sins being laid upon Christ, about Christ bearing our sin. John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away, and you know the words, which beareth away the sin of the world. Or you move into 1 Peter chapter 3 and a verse or 2 in verse 24 about he himself bearing our sins in his own body to the tree. And so we clearly see from Scripture the substitutionary nature of the atonement. On the basis of the Scripture, we can say that our sin is imputed to Christ. Now, this does not mean that our sinfulness was transferred to Him. That is utterly impossible. But the guilt of our sin was imputed to Him. Now, there's some that would object to this. How can that be? How can one take the sin of another or the guilt of the sin of another? Well, sin is what? It's transgression of the law. And therefore, there is a legal obligation to punish it. And in this sense alone, it is the legal obligation of the sin that is said to be transferred to another. And this is what it is. This is the guilt of the sin that was laid upon or is imputed to Christ. And that's something that could be transferred. The penalty that was due for that sin, the, the guilt, the legal obligation. And why that is the case is because that is not something that is inherent in man. It's not of his nature. It does not belong to him properly in the sense that it's part of its constitution. It is something that he has done. And therefore, it is something objective. It is something that can be laid on Christ. And that's why we can say that the guilt of sin can be imputed to another. Now, there's another way in which the New Testament uh, refers to this aspect of the essence of vicariousness. And it's seen really in the use of the word for. And again, you've heard this before. In Matthew chapter 20, and you can turn back there because we're only a few chapters in front, but Matthew chapter 20 and the verse 28, 
we read these words, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The same thing we read in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. And in these verses, the word for, it is the Greek preposition ante, A-N-T-I. And it's a word that means simply in the place of. And that carries the idea of an exchange, something taking the place of another. And this clearly teaches us substitution. And it's also further strengthened by how the word appears elsewhere in the New Testament in two other verses. Turn on back again then to Matthew chapter 2. And it's so clear that this word means an exchange of or in the place of. Matthew chapter 2 and there in verse 22. We read this here. And when he, so this is speaking of Joseph, when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judah, and here it is, in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither, notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee, in the stead of, or in the room of. Also we read in, uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, in Luke 11, verse 11, Or if he asked a fish, will he for a fish, or in the place of a fish, give him a serpent? So there can be no doubt when we see how this word anti is used that it speaks of substitution in the place of the many. In most places, however, the Greek word that is used to speak of the sufferings and the death of Christ is the preposition hooper, H-U-P-E-R. A few examples of that, you want to turn to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. A well-known verse it says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And this word, hooper, well, it's got a double significance. It means for the advantage of, for the benefit of, but it also means in the place of, substitution. Now, there are those who go, of course, and they would ob object to the vicarious nature of the atonement, and they would say, well, this word should always be rendered for the benefit of. Christ died for the benefit of his people. But context always determines the use of that word. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15 and verse 3, we read, Christ died for our sins. Now, you can hardly mean that to say Christ died for the benefit of our sins or for the advantage of our sins. That doesn't make sense. The word there is hooper, and so it must be translated, Christ died in the place of our sins. He took our sins upon himself, and he was punished in our room and stayed. Now, of course, as always, we find objectors to the substitutionary nature of the atonement. Among such objection is that the innocent is made to suffer for the wicked. You say, you can't do that. Now, I've already touched on that. And it is true that Christ is the just one dying for the unjust. But I've already pointed out it was not our sinfulness that was imputed to Christ. It was our guilt. 
And therefore, Christ was accounted guilty upon the cross. And as such, God did not violate His own justice when wrath was poured out upon the blessed Savior. And so that does away with that accusation or that objection that the innocent was dying in the place of the wicked or the guilty, because imputation removes that. Christ was dying in the place of sinners because their sin was transferred, the guilt of it, to Him. And He suffered their penalty in their place. So the first characteristic, we're thinking about the essence of the atonement. What's it like? is that it was substitution. The second uh, characteristic is that the atonement is objective in essence. It's objective in essence. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it's good to establish what the words objective or the word objective means. What I mean when it's objective or something is objective? Well, it's something that is not influenced by personal feelings or opinions, or interpretations, or prejudice. It's something that's based on facts. It's something that is unbiased. And that's contrasted with the word subjective, which describes something that is influenced by our opinions, by our interpretation, by our personal beliefs, or by our feelings. Now, the way I always like to think about these two words, objective and subjective, whether it's right or wrong, but the way I always think about it, when I hear this word objective, well, what does this mean? I always think of something outside of me. It's outside of me. It's not based on how I feel and how I think. It's, it's outside of me. But when I think of something that's subjective, it's something that's inside of me. It in, uh, impacts me. It is how I view a thing and how it makes me feel and how I interpret it. And so objective to me, I always think it's outside, subjective, it's inside, whether that's right or wrong, but that's the automatic how I jump to it in my mind. Now, when it comes to saying that the atonement is objective, it's not how I think it is or why it was me and my personal feelings, my interpretation, how it makes me feel, the impact it's had on me. When we say the atonement was objective, we mean that it makes its primary impression upon the one to whom it was made. And who was that? God. God. Now, there is a subjective response in the atonement, and we'll see that. A subjective response in the hearts of the elect, because through the atonement they are, well, as obtained for them, the gifts of faith and repentance, and then all that flows from that. So there is a subjective element in it. But first and foremost, it was objective. It was Godward in its nature. The sacrifice Christ made had its impact primarily, firstly, most importantly, upon God. No matter what I think or feel, no matter how it's impacted me, it was made towards God. The very meaning of the word atonement. And we've already thought about that. It makes that abundantly clear. Because it's by atonement that propitiation has been made. God has been appeased, and in result of that is our sin has been expiated. It's been removed from us. And so the very understanding of the words of atonement makes us realize that it's objective. It was Godward. I'm not going to go all over that again, but the Scripture 
does give evidence to the very fact that the atonement was objective. In the first place, just to back this up, instead of just saying it, we can see, we can see that the work of the priests in the Old Testament was objective. While the prophets, they represented God among men, the priests, well, in their sacrificial and intercessory work, they represented men in the presence of God, and therefore they looked Godward in a Godward direction. Now, Hebrews 5 and the verse 1 explains that to us. Hebrews 5 verse 1. It tells us there, For every high priest, taken from among men as ordained for men, in things pertaining to God, or things that are Godward in nature, they were chosen from among men. They were ordained for the purpose to act on behalf of men in their interest in those things that were Godward in their nature, those things that terminated upon God. Prayers offered to God. Sacrifices offered to God. And so we can see that in the work of the priests, that the atonement was objective in its nature. You see him? Truth is also conveyed by the offering of sacrifices. They're clearly objective. They're offered to God. They weren't offered to man. And that characteristic was also seen in, in heathen or pagan sacrifices. They offered them to their deity, supposing those sacrifices to have a fact upon them. The sacrifices of the Old Testament while they were brought to God primarily to atone for sin, they were also brought to God as expressions of thankfulness and devotion. And so we see this, that, that these sacrifices, they were Godward in their nature. So we see it in type really set before us, but also we see it in the terms that's used. Used concerning atonement, the term reconciliation. Well, the one who makes the offering reconciles not himself. He doesn't reconcile himself, but those whom he represents, those who have offended God. He reconciles God unto them and in turn them unto God. But another key word is the word ransom. The work of Christ it is represented in Scripture under the imagery of a ransom or a price that is paid. And that's an objective term. You see, the price is paid by a subject to the object. And again, Christ, He paid the price to God, not man, not Satan. It was God's justice that you and I were in debt to. And it's His righteousness that needed to be satisfied. And Christ, as a Redeemer, as a Goel, He paid the price to God. He purchased us with His own blood. As we read in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, or 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20. And this implies one to whom a price was paid. Christ paid the price. Christ ransomed us. But He did so by paying the debt to God. Now again, there's obviously those who will object 
and reject this concept that the atonement was objective. And they say, well, we have to reject this because Christ, this is really God satisfying or paying Himself. And yet Christ, He was a representative of His people. He became a true man, and as such, He was born under the law. He was obligated to keep the law of God. So there's ones, and they, well, they reject to say, well, this is God paying Himself. How can it be objective? How can it be Godward if this is just Christ or God satisfying Himself? Well, the very fact that Christ became the mediator, it takes away that objection. The Unitarians, they also deny this view because they deny the Trinity. To them, Christ was not offering a sacrifice to anyone. And they merely view the atonement as being subjective and that it impacts man and that it changes man, that it turns man around from being an enemy of God to being a lover of God. But that fact or that falsehood, it removes the fact that the Scriptures clearly teach that God is angry with the sinners. And it also makes the blood of Christ of no importance. What was Christ shedding His blood for? If it was simply to have a subjective impact upon man and had nothing to do with offering a sacrifice to God, well, it renders the blood shedding of Christ as irrelevant. So the atonement, it is objective in nature as well as substitution. The third characteristic of the atonement is the atonement is penal in essence. Now, penal is a word that describes something that is related to, used for, or prescribing the punishment of an offender under a legal system. So, this is all to do with legality. There is a penalty to be met and paid. And the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament was put in place so that God's people would understand this. God, He commanded that animal sacrifices would be offered as a way of showing that sin must be paid for, that there was a penalty to suffer. See, under the ceremonial system, the sacrificial bullock or ram, it must bleed, it must suffer, it must die. And the offerer himself, he also suffered in the sense that he suffered loss. The animal, whether it was a, a bullock or a, a ram, was taken from his flock and his herd, and therefore he did incur a loss. So there is suffering involved here. And this is because there was a penalty to be paid. Now in harmony with this Christ, he laid stress upon his own sufferings as essential element in the atonement that he made. In Acts chapter 3, well, speaking of Christ, Acts chapter 3 and the verse 18, it tells us but those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer. He hath so fulfilled. If the atonement is to be made, there must be agony. There must be suffering. The full penalty of the law must be met. 
And this was typified in the sin offering. If you can remember there, the whole animal was burnt. And that set forth the fullness of Christ's sufferings. And that's emphasized by the fact that on the cross, what did the Savior do? He refused to drink that would have mitigated his sufferings because the debt had to be paid. The punishment had to be endured. He suffered to the utmost degree in body, in mind, and in soul. He had to. And therefore, he satisfied the penalty of the law. Christ's sufferings on the cross were the epitome of his sufferings throughout his life. And I'll mention more about that in a moment. But it was in his actual death that the penalty of the law is satisfied. And there could be no mistake, absolutely no mistake, that his sufferings had a penal characteristic about them. Hebrews chapter 2. And the verse 9 tells us, one of the verses, many verses that tell us. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, and here's the penal aspect to it, should taste death for every man, for every one of his people. He was taking the penalty for them. And this means that Calvary cannot be explained in terms of calamity. Cannot be explained in terms of, oh, it was a great tragedy that one so good would die such an awful death. It also cannot be explained in terms of chastisement. Because the Lord Jesus, well, there was no uh, need for moral improvement in Him. He was absolutely perfect. Noah's sufferings, in essence, were what? They were punishment. And the purpose of such was the satisfaction of divine justice. Now, the sufferings of Christ, as I said, there's more to it than just His death upon the cross. And in the New Testament, there's a variety of terms that are translated to suffer. They fall into two main categories. The first Category, well, the words really mean in terms of permission or to permit. And you know those verses, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not for of such is the kingdom of heaven, or permit them, allow them. But then the second category of words that are translated to suffer is those words which imply the enduring of affliction. And the one word that's mainly used and concerned of Christ's sufferings is the verb passion. Passion. Now, it's used 39 times in the New Testament. Sometimes it's referred to or used in terms of Christ's suffering at the hands of men. We read about that in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. But it's also used to refer in the sufferings and the atonement. We've already quoted 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, that Christ also of once suffered or he endured affliction for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. On one occasion, it is actually translated the word passion in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. The associated noun, I'm sure you can guess, is the word Passover. 
And of course, it's in that feast that we see the sufferings of Christ clearly set forth by the lamb that was roasted. But the sufferings of Christ, yes, they have their epitome at the cross, but he endured suffering throughout all his life, and his sufferings, will they fall into two categories. We have those sufferings which are what we term his ordinary sufferings. Those are things which came upon him because he was a true man. Things that are common to men. The Lord Jesus, he suffered thirst. He suffered weariness. He suffered hunger. He suffered sadness. He suffered grief of mind. Now, why do we say that they're common to men, all men, because you and I, we suffer hunger, grief of mind. They are accentuated in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because he is impeccable, sinless human. He felt those things most keenly. But then we have the other category, his extraordinary sufferings. And those things are the miseries which came upon him, which were positively administered to him because he is our surety, because he became the mediator of the covenant. And of course, there's three places where this is so clearly seen, in his temptations, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and at the cross. There we see most especially his extraordinary sufferings, things that came upon him because he became the mediator. In his sufferings, in his temptations, we see this by the very fact that it's said he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. So this is something that didn't come upon him naturally, because all men, yes, we are tempted, but these are special sufferings, extraordinary sufferings, a depth and a degree of temptation that you and I can know nothing of, but he suffered. Then at Gethsemane and at the cross. Well, he suffered things that cannot be explained by natural laws. It was the view of the cup that was before him, that he was able to say that my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. It was because he was abandoned at the cross, because he was bearing our sin and iniquity, that he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, there's other men and women, and they have had their nights of sorrow. Christ was in Gethsemane, had a sorrow. And there's other men and well, I don't know, but I'm sure women who were crucified. But the Lord Jesus, there was a level of extraordinary suffering that came upon him. Why? Because he was fulfilling the legal obligations as our surety. And that's why the, pen, the hymn writer got it right when she penned the words. None of the ransom ever knew how deep were the waters crossed. Now how dark was the night that our Lord passed through, ere he found the sheep that was lost. Not even God's children, though we have the revelation of Scripture, you and I, we will never be able to fathom the depths of Christ's suffering. And yet, he can fathom the depths of our suffering because he endured ordinary suffering. 
And yet, over and above that, he endured extraordinary suffering. Now, when we consider this positive infliction of suffering upon Christ for our sakes, we must not think that this was divine emotion. It was divine act. God was not angry towards His Son. This was not sort of some cosmic outburst of rage. It was a judicial act. As His Father administered judgment upon His Son, He loved His Son still with that great infinite affection that He had from all eternity. You know, brethren and sisters, that emphasizes for us the willingness of the choice of God to send His Son to save us. As He was inflicting judicial punishment upon Christ, it was a judicial act. It was no wrath. It was no anger towards His Son personally but it was for our sake. And that also magnifies the intense love that He had for us as He acted in such a manner towards His well-beloved Son. Christ, as He suffered, He also knew that the infliction or the affliction that was coming upon Him and the positive infliction of judicial wrath upon him. He also knew that it wasn't coming against him personally. He knew that. He knew that it was for our sakes that he was suffering. How do I know? Well, Christ. Christ was not seized as an unwilling victim. But the Lord Jesus willingly went to the cross. John 10. He said, No man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. And so the Lord Jesus knew that his Father was not personally angry with him, but he understood that it was for our sins. He suffered upon the middle tree. There is no other way that you and I can understand the sufferings of Jesus Christ except that they were penal in nature. He came to suffer the penalty and the punishment that was our due. And so here are three major characteristics of the nature of the atonement. It was substitution. It was objective. It was penal. And the next time we'll consider that it was definite. Before that, we'll consider it was relative, and that is that it did have an impact upon us, that it does affect us, that it does turn our hearts on to God. We'll also consider that it's definite, and that will lead us in to think about the extent of the atonement. For whom was the atonement made? May the Lord bless His Word to our hearts for His own name's sake, and I know there's Maybe a lot in that, but I trust that it'll help us to be grounded in the faith and edify us and help us view the atonement in the way it ought to be viewed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
we thank thee once again for the wonderful doctrine of the atonement. And we thank you, Lord, that we're not left to grapple about with our own feeble understanding or to formulate what it really meant and what the impact of it was. But, Lord, you have given us your word, and we see by type and shadow, we see by terms and phrases its nature, its essence, that it was substitutionary. Christ died for the ungodly. We thank the Lord, we also see that it was objective. We thank the Lord that thy Son gave and offered a perfect sacrifice unto thee. And we also rejoice that it was penal, that the sufferings that Christ endured satisfied divine justice. There is no other way we can explain his extraordinary sufferings other than the fact that he was paying the penalty for sin. And so, Father, we thank thee once again for Jesus Christ. And we thank thee for thy great love to us. Truly, we are a blessed people. We are unworthy of the least of thy mercies. But we thank thee for the one who is worthy. Bless us, Lord, in the season of prayer, before morning worship. Bless the word that has been spoken unto our children and our young people. And may, O God, thou be glorified in all things. For this we pray in the Savior's precious, his worthy name. Amen.